My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. We get into some heavy stuff on More Than My Past podcast, but recording this episode was a real joy. Sam Delaney's career started in labour politics before shifting to journalism and broadcasting. You might have spotted his work in the pages of Heat magazine, on the airwaves of TalkSport, or on the screen in one of his notorious morning TV appearances. More recently, he's turned his hand to podcasting, including the hilarious Top Flight Time Machine. Sam had a slightly chaotic upbringing, with drink and drugs never far away and the stresses of his career, fatherhood and addiction combined when he suffered a breakdown in 2015. He now offers advice on dealing with addiction and mental health problems in his new newsletter and podcast, The Reset. Make sure you look it up once you've listened to our chat. When you were at Heat Mag, obviously that was fiscally rewarding. And I think, if I'm right, from what I've researched, but at that time, you were actually realising that you were going to have to act on your addictions. And But do you think that your descent was quicker because you were frustrated with the work you were doing or the fact that you felt the work you were doing, you know, was not necessarily as fulfilling as it might have been if you were doing stuff that you're doing now? Do you know what I mean? Well, you- I think there is, I think there's some truth in that, generally speaking, about my you know, use of alcohol and drugs. As it happens, heat was not the moment that happened, although you're right to identify the fact that I probably wasn't particularly happy at heat for those reasons, okay. you know. But actually, yeah. I was all right. In fact, for most of my time at heat, I was completely sober because for many years I'd been the sort of bloke who kind of would party hard and then suddenly, because I'm a bit all or nothing, I'd go, yeah. right. And when I started, I was like, right, I'm just going to knock it all on the head because I'm, I'm too busy here and I'm, and I'm not going to be able to focus if I'm getting off my face all the time. So I was pretty much like not drinking at all, certainly not doing drugs during that time. But you are right to identify the fact that it probably led to other things. And, and my mental health by the end of it was not ideal either because it just didn't suit me. Yeah. didn't suit me at all and that but actually what happened was um a few years later i had a another sort of big corporate job at comedy central in the uk and i was made their editor-in-chief and sort of had to make you know i was responsible for all of their digital output commissioning mm-hmm. and creating ideas to go online and stuff and it was another big corporate job it was even more corporate than heat it's a big american-owned company you know, it was over in Camden at MTV Studios, which sounds wow. cool, but it was so grey and corporate and process-driven and everything that I was not used to and detested. And um, But I'd done it because I had two young children and freelance work is, you know, sometimes oh, yeah. you just think, oh, you know, this is irresponsible. I'm being offered a good salary here. I'm going to take it. And it's comedy central. Time, I mean, it sounds amazing, right? It yeah, sounds, it sounds like, like a great, great job. It was awful. Yeah. But I'm aware that I sound like very privileged and entitled when I say things like that because uh, uh, it is obviously a great job uh, on the face of it. And I'm lucky to have had, you know, a lot of fun things that I've done in my career. And so I can go, oh, it was was awful. It's hardly fucking awful turning up at MTV to come up with some comedy fucking viral ideas. But having said that, I just hated the day-to-day. Yeah thing the people the corporate atmosphere the stifling nature of it the rules and I've always more or less through my career been freelance and called the shots myself and therefore just haven't had to sort of follow too many orders or turn up at places at a certain time or go into meetings and present powerpoints so it felt alien to me but I was also just overwhelmed during that time as well I, I, I took the job but I'd already a few months previously signed a contract to write a book 
And I was behind on the deadline for that book. And then simultaneously to that, I was presenting on TalkSport, which yeah. I didn't want to give up because you know what it's like. As an actor, yeah. I'm sure it's really similar. It's, it's always pre- feast or famine. And you kind of, if you've got something on the go, you, you cannot allow yourself to drop it, even if something else comes along. At yeah. that time, I had, I, I had this book to finish and they paid me in advance. I was contractually obliged to finish a book. And I was doing that and then I was getting up and I live in Barnes in southwest London and my kids were young, you know, so my my son was still at stage where, you know, he's not sleeping all the time through the night and that. And my lifestyle at that time was basically getting up in the morning, driving on my scooter all the way from Barnes to Camden Town, working in this sort of not very pleasant environment under quite a lot of stress and pressure then I would often jump on the scooter drive from Camden down to Waterloo, London Bridge, where the offices of talks, the studios of Talksport were at the time, present a three-hour evening show, <laughs> then go home, have a bit of dinner, and when the kids and my wife were in bed, I'd stay up and write through the night in order oh to God. try and hit my book deadline. Then I'd get a couple of hours sleep, jump up in the morning and do it all over again. And that went on for quite a long time. And by the end of it, to be honest, I was like, I was up in the night, but I had a, a bottle of scotch and a, and a gram of gear by my side in order to get me through it. And that is when things started to unravel. And that was both overwhelm in terms of the amount I was taking on and also the sort of thing I was doing, particularly the job at Comedy Central, wasn't me. And I think a lot of the time, if you're doing something that isn't quite natural to you and who you are, as you identified at the start of this, you know, where you sort of think, this isn't quite me. This isn't what I'm cut out to do. I, d- I don't actually believe in what I'm doing. Mm. Um, that, I think, is a big trigger for uh, disappearing into bad habits, you know. Because well, you're, you- disguising, you're disguising what you truly feel, aren't you? That's the thing. Yeah. The loneliness of that. You're surrounded by people in those offices or on the set for me, and you're just you're disguising what you actually feel, and it takes a lot of effort to do that. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It was actually, that job was the first time I ever started to take drugs and drink at work during the day. Where did you feel freest to express yourself? What's the what's the sort of job that you've done where you felt like you uh, say what you de- feel? Definitely the podcast I do at the moment with Andy Dawson, Top Flight Time Machine. Yeah. It was one of those things that you kind of start and you don't think of it as a proper job or 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 even like it's kind of a hobby you go yeah i'll give it a go he 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 was doing extremely well with a podcast with bob mortimer and he um and he was like sort of earning a living out of it and it was and he was loving it and he got in touch with me and i just i'd had a double blow whereby in the space of a few months i basically had two jobs and they both disappeared within quick succession and we all know you know, I mean, most most people self-employed know that's like the nightmare scenario because I'd always thought, well, you know, it's fine. I can leave. I can lose either one of these, and I've never really become that emotionally attached to literally any job I've ever done. In all honesty, yeah. so it wasn't like I'd be gutted on that level. It was just like, oh shit, I got to earn a living and I've got to stay sane, and because yeah. obviously it can rock you a bit because it was all I'd been used to for the previous three years, and I'd also been running the production company that made the TV show and various other things, and there was problems there. So suddenly I was beset with problems, and um, and Andy, who I'd known for years. Uh, just as a sort of an occasional colleague, and he used to do bits and bobs like writing on my TV show, occasionally appearing on it. We'd we'd done little bits together for a few yeah. years. He got in touch and went, 
oh, do you fancy doing a new one with me? Because I want to do a football podcast, but Bob doesn't really feel comfortable talking about football. So it's just become comedy, which is great. But I still want to do a football one. Do you want to do it with me? And I said, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, literally, I'd gone from three years of just sitting in front of a mic all day long and doing a TV show and just having a platform to just get all my mad rantings off my chest to suddenly sat at home feeling skint and worried about my future. Yeah, and uh, and he said, do you want to do this? I thought, well, you know, a podcast is never going to turn into anything beyond a, a little bit of a hobby, but it'll keep me sane. And it really did. Mm-hmm. And then because you start with that kind of no one's listening anyway attitude, you, you're just talking to try and make the other bloke laugh, right? Yeah. So I'm trying to talk to make Andy laugh, right? <laughs> and Andy's doing the same back to me. And But in a way, that probably turned out to be a secret because it took off and it did become a living. But we never, uh, we, we have never allowed that to change the type of content we were doing. So we're doing the same sort of content now, which we did in episode one, where literally no one was listening. So we just said whatever. Yeah. And now, whatever, how many years it's been, two years, two and a half years later, it's got a big, big audience and it, and it um, earns a living. So I, actually, it's the freest I've ever been. <laughs> You've spoken about your upbringing, your childhood, and uh, you know my good night kisses always smell a whiskey for me. And you know <laughs> you've talked about you know how you got fags put into your stockings, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. Well, you know, you know, in my family, the, there was a tile bought for us, a black tile bought for us, because um, one of our relatives was sick of us doing gear off the kitchen surface. Like it was a black tile. <laughs> um, so, so. <laughs> What I'm, what I'm interested in, you know, you're, we've spoken briefly about the kids. I'm interested to know, mate, a couple of things about the about kids and us and the way we were brought up. It's just that thing. It's like you do anything, you cut your hand off, wouldn't you, to protect them from it all. But um, it's just like you said, it's a sort of rite of passage. And by mystifying it or banning it or whatever, it's difficult to negotiate, to navigate is the word, isn't it? It's difficult yeah, I guess just be open about it yeah. is my policy. Yeah. But it's all, it's all a learning process. But the thing with parenting, though, Jason, is that like, it is. I do feel dedicated, but I also feel that that, again, is an added pressure and why a lot of guys when they're in their 30s, I'm 45 now, but it was in my 30s when I ran into trouble. And I say this a lot. I go, people go through their teens and 20s caning it and you start to think as you go into your 20s, this is quite bad because I'm getting out of it all the time, but it'll be fine because in a few years when I'm in my 30s, I'll marry, settle down, get a job get a proper job and have kids and you think that kids in particular as well as those other things will be a magic bullet that you'll just wake up one morning and stop having any urges to get out of it because you'll be so devoted to your kids that you wouldn't want to jeopardize anything to do with their life but the reverse turns out to be true because you are and it's added pressure it's added stress it's added exhaustion yeah. It's added shame because I don't know about you, but I always had shame after a big night. I woke up and wrestled yeah. with shame most Saturday and Sunday mornings for years, even when I was quite young. But when you've got kids and you've been doing it, the shame is times a hundred because you think, Oh my God, I am responsible for these people. What was I doing last night coming in that late and being that battered? Right. And then the shame is immense. And yeah. the way you deal with it is you keep running and hiding from it so it gets into a vicious circle. So one of the things that I try to talk about quite a lot because I've seen it in so many friends of mine is the fact that a lot of people, it's when they hit that moment of parenthood yeah. and it's the, and the ones who take it the most seriously, my dad left when it got too much for him. 
Do you know what I mean? Um, whereas I and most of my mates, many of whom were from broken homes themselves and therefore are more dedicated try because to, they know to, to try to be the very best dad they can be. And as a result of the pressure they put on themselves to be this idealized version of a dad, they, they make themselves more vulnerable yeah, to drinking drugs and depression. And that is totally what happened to me. And it's totally what's happened to loads of my mates. I've got a few yeah. mates who are a few years younger than me. So they're at an earlier stage of fatherhood. And I see it and I go to, and I say to them, can't even say out loud that it's getting to you because you think if you say that fatherhood's proving stressful, number one, you think that means you look like a bit of a failure who can't handle it. And number two, you're aware probably in most cases that however hard it is for you, it's even harder for your missus. So you don't want to be the one moaning because yeah. you think, oh, God, you know, my wife's got it probably even harder. And and maybe she has. She probably has. But the point is that doesn't mean that you should not accept or acknowledge to yourself that it's really tough and you're trying really hard. And sometimes you've got to just give yourself a bit of a rest or look after yourself because if not, you will channel all of that shame and exhaustion in bad ways and try and look for a way out by drugs and drink. I know, and you've got, you know, you've now started this, I don't know how long you've been going on with the reset, but um, mm. it's a podcast, but it's also a newsletter, which I find amazing. And it's been really great because, you know, I mean, I'm a bit older than you, but I also grew up, you know, with the lads mags and the caning hedonistic lifestyle. In fact, I was in Lockstock and post that, obviously, we were right in the middle of it. Or in fact, mm. we did stuff with heat, but at the same time as when you were there. But a lot of us, I mean, it is getting better, but a lot of us, especially my generation, you know, in their early 50s, blokes mm. are rubbish at uh, um, talking. But what we're really good at is being loyal friends. But yeah. loyal friends to my generation just means water under the bridge. It doesn't mean you've been through anything with each other because you don't talk mm. about those things. You know, when, when there's a massive split or someone leaves their wife, you phone and go, look, brother, I'm here. Are you all right? And they go, mm. yeah. And you go, phew, done my bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. so the newsletter has been great because I think, you know, post that time, um, it's, it's helping men who are you know listening to that and listening to each other talk a little bit and that that's an, a huge achievement that you should be proud of i think oh thanks a lot well that means a lot i mean i really think you're right it's really it's for everyone men and women young blokes too and i get nice messages from different people of different genders and different ages and stuff but on the whole it's that lad generation that you're talking about which in different ways we both kind of you know oh. we grew up in a lot of fun. I'm not one of these guys who looks back and goes, oh, it was just awful. I mean, that, that's sort of like the 90s kind of Britpop era and, and laddism and all of that sort of stuff was was a really good fun. But that culture that you grew up in means that we, yeah, we're not, it's not natural to us to share emotion, admit to it. The, the thing is, it's like that thing of like going around being a Jack the Lad and part of that persona, as much as, it, as it's fun to be, like involved in that kind of yeah. world and 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 have that sort of lifestyle like a lot of it is it, nothing bothers me i am completely cavalier and life's just one long laugh right and it's not just that you're putting on a show to other people that's what i actually thought for years i actually thought to myself nothing fucking bothers me i've never cried since i was eight life's just stupid anyway so you might as well like that oasis song you know you could wait for a lifetime spend a day in the sunshine you might as well do the white line that was like on the first song their first album which was obviously very influential to that whole kind of era 
And and it was sort of like saying, listen, right, life's a load of shit. It's all stupid anyway. You might as well just get off your face and enjoy it and stop worrying so much. And I thought, yeah, that seems like a really good design for life, actually. <laughs> that was what was totally inherent in the other cultural phenomena of the era. Loaded magazine basically communicated that to me. And I thought that I was a student when it came out. I thought this is the best. This is like a Bible, you know, and even, even Lotstock was a sort of movie about a bunch of, bunch of lads just making the best of life. Do you know what I mean? Having a laugh and having adventures. And, And that was obviously very influential on us all in the same era as well. And you sort of think, yeah, this is brilliant. You, you know, don't worry about life being shit or things not turning out the way you want. You can still just live every day. Like it's like, it's your last, you know, but, Really, it's quite short. It takes a long time to realize that's a bit short-termist. You do need to acknowledge the fact that you will feel down and miserable at times or frustrated or upset or lonely. You just have to because if you keep thinking the only way is to ignore those feelings and maybe even cover them up with drink or drugs or any other sort of addiction you've got, they will not just go away. They will just lurk inside of you forever and you'll never learn a way, a, a productive way of coping with them or processing them all you'll know is hide them numb yourself from them distract yourself from them that is the uh, bit of the legacy of the sort of uh, cultural social atmosphere that i think our generations grew up in yeah and also we grew up you know, I, my formative years of school and stuff were all under Thatcher, same as, mm. I guess, you, maybe probably just at the end of... Yeah, no, but, Thatcher was, yeah, throughout you know, my whole school life, she was, yeah, it was Thatcher. So that we still were affected by that, you know, the, the whole kind of work ethic and guilt about doing nothing or, you know, that whole thing about productiveness and, like, you were at Heat, you know, yeah. when you were grafting your ass off it, and it was Heat magazine. I'd worked at, you know, as a kitchen porter, whatever I was doing, and I'd be grafting away and uh, taking my money and wiping the sweat off my brow and and that mm. whole thing was what what turned us into those those kids that came out you know that, that turned yeah, into I think that's re- I like, think that's really interesting like what were your expectations of life if you grew up a generation beforehand I don't know I maybe three day week yeah or maybe maybe my dad's generation for instance were like you know still in that era where it's like listen all you have to do is keep your head down get some qualifications then you will get a job and if you get a job you're set for life you can just keep your head down squirrel some money away get a house get married and your life will be fine then you just retire and die beautiful in and out no damage done right and uh and and i i suspect i know and i think it's really it's really interesting what you're saying that I, my biggest, one of my biggest fears that, and, and one of the things that contributed most to my troubles over the year is a massive fear of being lazy, a massive yeah. fear of appearing to be lazy to anyone or appearing to be lazy to myself, right? Yeah. I absolutely, it depressed me. I often think about like summer holidays off school at home and my mum would be working. My brothers were all older, so they were probably working themselves. They all left school very young and got jobs. Had worked hard, and so that was a big influence on me. Was seeing them sort of have a certain amount of success in their industry yeah. by just leaving school at sixteen, getting started, and and working nonstop. And but I used to be like sat at home in the summer holidays quite a lot, you know, like long days sat inside your house, even though it's sunny outside, watching fucking the Sullivans, right? 
or sons and daughters or whatever. Yeah, lockdown, like, you mean, yeah. And it's like really, really depressing, right? And I just remember, oh, God, I used to be so depressed and think, God, look at myself. Everyone else in that I know, like my brothers or whoever, are all out working and grafting and doing doing things and making things happen and having adventures and fun. And I, I was a schoolboy who just sort of didn't – sort of had loads of time on my hands and didn't really know what to do with myself. And I And I found that really like miserable and then once I sort of got a bit older I sort of spent my whole adult life kind of trying to run away from being that person and now age 45 just over the last two three years I've completely refocused and think god that is just like that is really toxic my sort Mm. of like pathological refusal to ever relax or do nothing right it's not healthy and it's mad and it's grounded in insecurity and, you know, I don't aspire to being a lazy person necessarily, but I do aspire now to sort of having balance in my life where I work for the right reasons to pay the bills or to get some sort of creative fulfillment. But I try to sort of also focus on an ability to take pleasure out of sometimes just not doing stuff all the time. I still haven't mastered the getting in the bath and lighting the candles thing. I do no. get in the bath, light all the candles, and then I go, I wonder what everyone else yeah. is up to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's a <laughs> but, lot. Of, well, that that's it. That's what's good about podcasts like this, you know, and the conversations we're having is that, like, a lot of the stuff, if you read stuff about mindfulness or all the other stuff that's out there about mental health, which is not really – it's great for a lot of people, but I would say for blokes like us, it doesn't quite chime or or, mm-hmm. or relate to the specifics of our lives. So, but the principle of it is great. So the principle is, yeah – Try to take some time out. Try to look after yourself. Try to sometimes reflect on your own needs. All of that stuff is I absolutely agree with. But the practicality is what they tell you because most of this stuff caught on first with middle-class women in California. That's where a lot of this thinking first took hold. And so things like baths and candles seem to work great for them. We need our own baths and candles. (laughs) You know, I don't know what that is. And, And if baths and candles work for you and you're listening to this, then great. I'm delighted for you. I like a candle myself, actually. But baths I find really tedious. You know, it just has to be something that you take pleasure out of, which isn't destructive. Sometimes I just say to people, you know what, mate? Have a wank and a Snickers once in a while. I might cheer you, you up. I heard you say that. <laughs> a wank and a Snickers. I know I love that. <laughs> That's our candle in a bar. <laughs> You know, the thing is also about, like, you talk about mental health and about, you know, who deserves to be depressed, or who, mm. <laughs> who deserves to be suicidal. You know, it's like, it's relative. You know, you've said I didn't tell anyone the truth about how I felt because I couldn't justify it, you know. And yeah. I always think about that. There was a young girl who was the sort of heir to the Guinness fortune. And I remember probably 25 years ago, she threw herself off a building. And I was like, how dare you throw yourself off a yeah. building? How dare you do that? You know, mm. and then, I've you know, I've, as I've grown up and become a bit more empathetic and i've realized you know that it's relative to you isn't it that that level of of uh absolutely health. right i try in terms of the whole thing about balance i try to be a bit more like that with regards to people's politics and background as well for the same reason you sort of think once you get really into this stuff that we're talking about today about the human condition so to speak yeah. and the emotions that we all feel you sort of think that none of this observes how much money you've got in the bank, right? Or how big your house is. None of it. You know, I mean, the, the classic example, isn't it, is is when mental health was less on the agenda publicly 
was when years ago Stan Collymore was at Aston Villa and said he was depressed and that he needed time off. And John Gregory, the unreconstructed John Gregory, who's his manager, publicly went, well, bloody hell, I wouldn't mind being on his money and being depressed and all of this, right? It's his own manager. Can you imagine that today with the way we all talk about mental health so sensitively? And I remember that being a big discussion point because there was a huge number of football fans who were totally agreeing with John Gregory and saying, how dare Stan Collymore, who gets paid however much a week, go around saying he's depressed? And that was yeah. a very prevalent way of thinking. And I and like you say, I would I would have thought the same. And it takes a long time for us to sort of rid ourselves of that. It takes a long time for men in particular to accept that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but just accept that you you do feel depressed sometimes. You do get anxious. It it is something that we all go through. It is impossible to avoid. It doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. It will happen. And it's natural, you know, it's a, it's a natural, you know, it's a natural ebb and flow of your life. You know, it's like yeah. mental health isn't like the weather in California. <laughs> you know I mean? No, you can't just be the same. And, it, and, and if it is, and if you're, you know, if you're, if, well, listen, we, we could talk about this forever. But I think what you've done, and you know, for me, in a really sort of crass way, the way that, you know, someone who's an obvious lad and who's an obvious fella, Herbert, stroke, geezer, mm who can talk about what you've talked about so eloquently and in the language of that people understand who, who, um, who were running alongside you during those periods of time. I think it's a real relief for all of us to. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So I'm really glad that you see it that way because, you know, the majority of younger people in particular get in touch with me on Twitter go, ah, they think that the moment you become sober, you become a bit weird yeah. a bit boring and you stop being able to have fun right and i really am glad that sometimes we talk about stuff on top flight time machine which isn't about mental health that that podcast but i will sometimes bring things up like this because we are the the shit we come out of on that podcast that, that is absolutely like ridiculous juvenile like no. madness train of thought madness right and i think you might like that podcast you might not but one thing it isn't is pious one thing I'll say, you know, um, and I know you're trying to find a way of doing less, but, you know, what you've achieved since getting sober, I think it's, it's really interesting because you've got a, an anarchic sense of humour, which feels like it might be fueled by drink and drugs. Do you know what That's I mean? What a lot you know, of people say that to me. They say, oh, I didn't realise you were sober. It sounds you know like I mean? you're out of it all the time. <laughs> it's, it's just there and it's just, you know, whether it's like, you know, whether you fe- it feels like we fell in the pot when we were younger, so mm. you don't need that, whatever. But the point I think is really interesting is that anyone creative, and I only know my industry, but you can't find an actor who was off their nut, right, who then got sober whose then career collapsed because they weren't as good. You know, it's just not true. And I think yeah. there's a myth, you know, I've worked with actors and I don't think he'll mind me saying it. And I never pop, bump into him in, in uh, pizza express anyway, but like Tim Roth, when we did um, mm. Rob Roy, he used to stand outside his caravan, uh, open the door of the caravan with a can of uh, Holston in his hand. Right? right. But I know he didn't drink the Holston. He would just stand there with it. And then he'd pour it down the sink. But it was a thing that he created that he wanted. To, do you know what I mean? It was a, his thing was like that he always had a beer in his hand. Well, like a ritual or was yeah, it no, your it was image just like or what? Thing. It was an image. It was just right. like, yeah, I'm a bit pissed and I, you know, and that's how I roll. And, um, ah. you know, like Robert, you know, Danny Jr., Hopkins especially, you know, 
and Bradley Cooper, all those actors that have that have gone on and created amazing, amazing work since they got sober. It's just, it's. I think there is a myth which says that if you're crazy and do drugs and drink, it's a creative, it's a creative fuel, and you'll work better because of it. And yeah, I, I, ain't true. I, I really, what I'm trying my best to avoid, and my wife has had to intervene on a couple of early drafts of the reset is be that pious guy who criticizes people for drinking. Because I think, listen, if you can drink and it's not a problem, great, I envy you, right? But sometimes I get a bit like, you know what? I said, the most boring thing you can do is be pissed. The the least imaginative way you can have fun is to get pissed or to take drugs. It means you can't think of other ways to draw joy and excitement out of life and the ways around us all the time. And, you know, I look at people like we always go, I mean, I don't know if you've worked with him. I hope he's not a mate, but I look at people like Johnny Depp and I think, mate, that whole contrived, oh, I'm a bit like Keith Richards, I'm all over the shop, you know. Uh, I just sort of think, mate, that's just depressing and and babyish. Like, if, if if that's the only way you can be creative or have a good time, or that's how you want to define yourself, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an unimaginative cliche, is yeah. what I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Have you spoken to you and and like watch those actors? You know, and that's my world. So I mean, it's it's mm. a bit sort of narrow minded. But or watched anyone in any industry that that manages to clean their act up and carries on and is is successful? It's it's um. It's a myth we need to quench. Did you see that Anthony Hopkins clip that he put out on his birthday, which I think was on like New Year's Day or something, and I put it, the link to it, in one of the episodes yeah. of the, where he just talked about sobriety and he came yeah. out with this great line, which I've actually sent on to some people who've contacted me personally about their worries. Is he goes, just remember that today is the tomorrow you were worried about yesterday. Yeah, I just couldn't remember what it was. With this. That's, I've, I've done the same, mate. I've quoted it to loads of people. Hopkins, <laughs> what a man. Have you ever worked with Hopkins, Jason? Mate, my ex-missus worked with him, and um, mm. he told her this story about how he used to go into cinemas when... Uh, I mean, he's a funny, funny, you know, humorous, lovely geezer, isn't he? And mm. he's potty. And he used to go into cinemas when... Um, son, even at his age, with his background... He'd go into cinemas when Silence of the Lambs was on and sit behind someone and go. <laughs> <laughs> I just That's love that he did that. I mean, I just love that he that did is that. Brilliant. Yeah. But yeah, he's brilliant. amazing. And it's been amazing talking to you, and I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've always been a fan of your work. It's nice to sort of finally meet you. And Thanks. so, um, anytime, mate. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes.